Hello all, welcome to the Lunar Seaspire Cartoon Fan Podcast. This is episode 384, and today we'll be talking about The Intruder, from the Owl House. I'm GC13. I'm Soren. And I'm David. So, I said I'd do it, and I did it. I have watched every episode of The Owl House that is out thus far, so... Okay. A little bit more context for what's coming on. Yeah, it took you a while, considering I was just spoiling the entire show constantly, every time we recorded. Eh, you were actually very minimal, so... I suppose. Because I mentioned things that were relevant, and not necessarily everything is, like, foreshadowed in the first, what, four episodes? Like, even, uh, what's what's his name? Ah, uh, well, well, I guess we'll get to that far, far in the future, but... Mm-hmm. Suffice to say that I still had a great many mysteries to ponder as I burned through the episodes. Yes, this this one really starts to set up the major themes and storylines for the show. Because generally the show did not have any sort of plot going on for a while. Like, it was just kind of like, Luce is in a cool little demon world and having fun little adventures. But this one is just like, the first we get that really shows a bigger picture and sets the foundation for like, basically the rest of the show. Because Ida's curse, surprise, surprise, is going to come up a lot. Oh, that it does. And then, and then it does. It's, uh, it's honestly, I really, really enjoy what this show had done with Ida's curse. Cause it's, it's obviously very magical in nature, but it was like, it's such a perfect little analogy for like chronic illnesses that people have, of course, pointed out long before I have, but just sort of like the start here, I didn't really get it when I was first watching the episode where she says like, you know, I've had it for a long time. I can't get rid of it. You know, with my elixirs, it's manageable. And just, like, that sort of acceptance of her condition is something that you usually don't see with, like, magical ailments or really any kind of ailments in shows. It's usually magically fixed one way or another. Gotta get out there and fix it quickly. Yeah, where it's like, you'll have normal illnesses or impairments that are fixed magically or with sci-fi or whatever and generally that's like a really common yet very annoying trope because it's like oh if you have a disability it can just magically get better despite like most people living their whole lives with it so uh, this show just being like no it doesn't go away actually and you have to live with it and it gets bad sometimes and it's better other times so there you go i really really enjoyed that with this show and we're going to keep seeing this theme recurring throughout the seasons, which I look forward to discussing further. Now, of course, Ida's Curse wasn't the only thing revealed in this episode. The other big one that will carry through the series is Luz's use of glyph magic. Mm-hmm. That's another one. Two, two for one whammy, where Luz's lack of a bile sack for a better word is also somewhat of an analogy for just like not necessarily having the same abilities as your peers and having to navigate a society that wasn't necessarily built for you and her finding her own workarounds and and that being like those two existing in tandem but i don't know it's it's hard to say which of the two is the bigger reveal because Ida's curse is so important, but uh, so so is Luz's growth in magic. They get they make so much hay out of that, especially in the first season, her quest to learn magic. And this is where it all starts with that one little 
I, I, I do call kind of shenanigans on the way that the phone just so happens to freeze on exactly the frame that shows the shows the glyph, but uh, that's okay. I forgive them. I don't think it was frozen so much. It was um, the video got corrupted, and by doing so, it revealed something that necessarily wasn't visible to the naked eye originally. Well, we know that the glyphs are there. They are visible in the spell, so it must have been just a, a frame-perfect stop. Because that's how she saw the got the ice, the plant, and the fire glyph by just oh hey here's a spell I can see the glyph now. With the others, I think it was um they existed in nature, and she found like there was there was one in a plant and there was one in the stars. I don't think she got another glyph from like an actual spell drawn by a witch. Well, no, she got a fireball thrown at her, and she uh, uh ganked the fireball glyph off of it, or ganked the fire glyph off of it. That was definitely not a natural acquisition. <laughs> I'll have to rewatch that part because I don't remember it. But yeah, maybe it did stop on that one specific frame because it definitely wasn't visible the first couple of times she watched the video. But I think it's really clever. The fact that she doesn't know that about glyphs does, uh, does set us up for some nice stuff in a later episode. So I, like I said, I forgive them. I, I, I did like that King actually covered the phone up with the pad before it got to that part, so maybe it would have been visible the whole time, and she just never got to finish the video. You're right. He did slap that bad boy on, like, right as it was about to appear. So I might even be giving them too hard a time. They might have thought of this and put that in there just for me, <laughs> and I just didn't realize that it was there just for me. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this episode was definitely, like, the part where I knew I was going to like this show. Because I love that kind of world building. It's it's definitely an inflection point, I think. It's where they kick it into high gear. I wouldn't say they kick it into high gear. There's plenty of shenanigans between now and the next like plot-packed episode. Yeah. But I, I do enjoy a good world building. It's what this podcast is for. Where would our content be if there weren't little nuggets of world building in these shows? Always. Always the lore building. That we could endlessly speculate about. All the terrible weather on the burning aisles. <laughs> yeah, how do, um, I wrote a note about this. How do normal plants exist, right? Like, they must be boiling water resistant. How often does it rain, though? It doesn't, episode-wise, rain that much. Well, then how are there plants at all without, like, precipitation? The, you know, how are there gornados? I mean, it's a magical world. They probably have a different ecology. <laughs> I mean, does the magic even come from the bile sack? I don't trust a lot of the, you know, science explained in the show. <laughs> yeah, it's also just, you could tell they're just like, this is a cartoon show, and it's funny that there's a giant green bile sack sticking out of the side of a heart. It, it's, it's not so much that you have a bile sack attached to your heart, it's you have a heart attached to your bile sack. Yeah, because, yeah, no, that's not going to affect cardiac output in any capacity. <laughs> yeah, they got magic now. I also love how bile, which is used for emulsifying fats, is now the magic juice. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's a reference to the the four humors where they gave all sorts of magical properties to... Uh, maybe there's a phlegm sack uh, somewhere <laughs> that has some kind of magical... Maybe that's in demons, you don't, you don't know. Uh, some demons do have bile sacks. Wasn't that stated? Well, those are the bipeds. The bipeds, that's right. Would giraffes have, would those have bile sacs? Yeah, they did have just normal giraffes there, so I like that tidbit. 
No, no, giraffes are demons. Giraffes were giraffes were exiles. They they established that in the very first episode. Right. When I learned the timeline, I thought they don't seem to know much about their history from more than fifty years ago. So for Ida, somebody who's only been around for you know maybe maybe forty or fifty years, y- you would figure the the giraffes would have to be relatively recent exiles for her to be like, man, I hate those guys, and then. I'm pretty sure the giraffes have been with us for more than that time. Maybe they just keep exiling them. Like, it's been continuous. Every time a giraffe shows up, they're like, oh, no, Get out. gotta go. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> Ida, uh. you know, being surprisingly foxy for her age, has to be, like, <laughs> at least 50. Yeah, yeah. Ida likes breaking the law, but these giraffes just take it too far. <laughs> it's just everything about them. It's that silent act, I think. <laughs> Drives people up the wall. Yeah, it's really freaking annoying. They do make noise. I'm pretty sure giraffes vocalize. Hmm. Only when they're making fun of you. That's the passive-aggressive comments for sure. Oh yeah, that's right. But demons are sensitive to passive-aggressive comments. Exactly. That's why they have to exile the giraffes. They're the only ones who can wield that weapon. Oh, they were the worst at it. I see. I'll bet you they drink purified water too. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, What does Luce drink? Yeah, speaking of water, I mean, where does her phone charge come from? How is she eating regularly? Eh, you know. Well, to be fair, it's it's it was stated in the previous episode that she is not eating normal food. Ida is not feeding her an approved human diet. And I think she had a, yeah, because she had a PB&J and she's like, oh my god, I haven't had normal food in so long. I mean, hopefully she's not just eating rats and coughing off of rat bones, <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's hilariously messed up. Would they be demon rats? They do have those. They have the, what are they called? The echo mice? I have, I have a question about the, the demon books King was using. Now, the first time I watched this episode, I got the impression that King was the author of those books. You know, because he says stuff like, oh, I'm going to have to edit that. But then I'm watching again, and he's like copying one of the images from the book, and he's not nearly as good in crayon as those illustrations are. So I'm like, maybe he's not actually the creator, or maybe he had a collaborator for all I know, but what impression did you guys get? Um, I think he's lying. He thinks he wrote the books, but he didn't. Yeah, that's very fitting with his with his character over time. Yeah, he's he he's plagiarizing these editions and just telling everybody he wrote them. <sighs> because that's the thing, it's like it fits so well with King for the books to be hilariously misinformed that I could believe that he's the one who published the books. But on the other hand, yeah, that would also fit with him, him pretending to be the author. He's just lying to everyone. Including himself, I'll bet. Yeah, because literally his whole character is that he thinks he's the king of demons when he isn't. Um, spoilers. Uh, he's just a regular little guy. And so him just being, yeah, and I also wrote the book about demons. Ignore the author. First and second editions. Yeah, and all the editions. And just just full face lying about it to the point where he believes it himself is very in character for him. Uh, the questions I could ask. <laughs> oh, also, also silly question. I, I noticed uh, that when Ida attacked Hootie, she knocked the door completely off of his hinges. So, like, there's no connection to the house for him. But... You know, we've seen what he can do coming out of the... Yeah, the organs. Uh, out of the door. <laughs> yeah, that's... uh, I don't know how that works. Like, if he's... 
Hootie's crazy. He he did look super dead for um a moment there. I don't know how he survived being disconnected from his body, but Ida can, so why not? I guess yeah, Hootie yeah. can recover after some amount of time. Yeah, she did get beheaded. And it was mentioned in text that she yeah. got beheaded. In that scene though, when uh when Ida knocks Hootie off how quickly were we supposed to realize that this thing was Ida? Because like the, the first thing I see, like I see, oh, is that the is that the Snaggleback they were talking about? Then they then they go to the closer up shot after the lightning, and it's like, oh, no, that looks a lot like Ida actually. Yeah, that silhouette up to, up to the point where I wasn't sure. Were we supposed to realize this immediately, or were we supposed to be in the dark until they until a big reveal? They did. I I think they were trying to go for a twist, especially with the fake Snaggleback literally exclaiming a twist. But Uh, yes, yes, they made that silhouette so much like Ida. I don't know if I've just been corrupted by seeing the rest of the show. I I can't see that silhouette and see anything mysterious. Even the shape of the eyes, it just screams Ida to me. Like I said, I I saw that on my first viewing, so I'm I'm pretty sure that a lot of people. I'm pretty sure that was a common experience. I guess among us older fans. Yeah, this is also a show for children. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it is. It really is, unfortunately. I'm reminded of a zero punctuation video where Yahtzee is reviewing some remake of The Ocarina of Time. And he's saying, oh yeah, I never played the original, so I played the remake. And I thought it was really easy. Even the Water Temple, which seemed very simple if you just you know, followed basic logic. Yes, I am saying I'm smarter than you were when you were 12. <laughs> no, they really are trying to explain things more, though. I, there's, I didn't even put in my notes, but I, somewhere in the middle here, somebody's explaining something, and I was like, man, that explanation took a long time. But even, you know, when you're looking at the setup for Ida's curse, they really drag out in a really heavy-handed way what the next piece we should care about is, because the episode ends with Ida being like, having a dream and just explicitly saying no not this memory again who are <laughs> you like it gives you the question to ask and also enforces that this is a memory yeah that didn't even seem to fit it was painful i did not enjoy that but that is just a reminder that the intended audience you know for shows it is legal for it to be for children sometimes and so okay. that is the okay. audience first and that's okay but it is different from some of the other children's cartoons we cover, which have varying degrees of how much they want to explain themselves. I don't know, maybe because yeah. it's like a magic show, the, they feel the need, but it's, it's fine. It's just sometimes a little painful for me. That was the most painful yeah. moment. But, it, you know, it's okay. There's definitely shows where it's like, um, we do have a deeper plot going on and we are going to hand it to you, like, piece for piece, so that even, you know, the savvier eight-year-olds who do get invested in this sort of thing like can follow along um and then there's like the mr incredible shows or the the incredible shows where it's like um you watching this as an adult is a completely different experience than watching it as a child where they're just like yeah we have a whole insane sub levels of plot and story going on that are gonna fly way over the heads of Mm -hmm. our target audience that's always fun learning new things about your favorite cartoons yeah, very very few shows go quite that intensely, especially ones, you know, the ones directed at children, like, they're like, okay, well, if we're gonna have deeper stuff going on, yeah, maybe the five-year-olds aren't gonna get it, but we do want to make it, like, understandable to maybe, like, the, the tweens and the, and the teens and all that. 
Yeah. But I mean, nothing will be as incredible. It'll. It's really hard to pull off a moment as crazy as J.K. Simmons coming onto your show and being like, I'm the twin brother that you could have speculated about from episode one, but only if you spent <laughs> decades of your life trying to decipher codes and staring at end title cards and all these crazy things, you know? So oh, yeah. <laughs> there, there were people, I'm pretty sure they were adults at that point, who were speculating that he had a twin brother and that the author was a twin brother. Oh, yeah. But that was something that was like, then explicitly revealed, right? And then it was explained, haha, we foreshadowed this actually the whole time. But no, The Incredibles is on a completely different level. They have stuff going on that they just are like, that's it. It adds context and world building, but we're not gonna lay it out on a platter later in the movie to reward you for being a smart little boy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's, for me, that's how, like, Adventure Time and Steven Universe functioned, where they can just put things in the details of, you know, both the background and dialogue that never have to be explicitly fulfilled. And maybe sometimes that's just because they'll never have enough episodes to do it. And sometimes it's because they just like playing with you and making you stay up really <laughs> late at night. Yeah. Hey, got to keep the theorists employed somehow, right? Yeah, where would we be without these types of shows? <laughs> yeah. I feel the the balance Owl House strikes is that what when it needs you to have the context necessary to connect the dots as far as like understanding the characters, they laid out really thick. So, you know, Ida's curse, they 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 lay it on real thick cuz it's important to understand who Ida is, but when it comes to things like magic, they're slower to explain and I you know, I'm 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 down for that. It's like the history of the Isles and stuff is, I mean, eventually it gets some explicit stuff, but it's definitely a little little more mysterious, it, and I, I enjoy those vibes. I enjoy seeing giant skeletons that civilizations are built on. I enjoy thinking about, yeah. you know, how the original magic of witches, you know, came about, and they, they've really developed that slowly, and, you know, that's fine. I also think it's incredible that uh, Luz is the one who does the magic, because she can draw perfect circles. So I really thought that the comment earlier that she, you know, is not as uh, strong as everyone else is just to totally wrong. She can not only draw tiny circles perfectly instantly, which I still struggle to do on my like tutorials <laughs> on my iPad, but uh, she manages to draw a giant crayon circle on the wall with literally no flaws um, in like 30 seconds. Yeah, it's the it's the full metal alchemist paradigm because um in that show, they are always drawing circles. As a matter of fact, only a very small handful of characters can do their alchemy without drawing circles, and they all draw them perfectly every time. <laughs> and, and and it's way more obvious because like so much of the cast is making these circles, but here it's just loose, and so you're like, okay, well maybe she was an artist, right? You can excuse it a little, but like they could have given the line some wobbles. One way to do that, for instance, is by just drawing a circle by hand, because my god, you'll never draw that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, nope, they, they definitely went into a digital tool and draw those, drew those circles. And, you know, There's, fine. There are people out there, like, real-life people who have, like, the iconic superpower of being able to draw perfect circles. <laughs> right. One of those people is loose. <laughs> yeah. Now, I... You talked about laying the character stuff on pretty thick, and of course, the there's another character thing that we had in this episode was 
you know, King's feelings of inadequacy. And it got so close in the middle of the episode when Luz is like, King, do you know what it feels like not to have people take you seriously, you know, while he's been desperately trying to get her to listen to his lesson on demons the whole day? And he's like, King actually acts very mature there. He's like, okay, Luz, how about, how about I help you first? Yeah. And then, of course, they do make explicit his, uh, his feelings later on. But, oh, man, you really feel for him. Like, Luz, I, you're usually more emotionally intelligent than this. That shows you just how into magic she is. Well, it also, it, you know, because King is basically a child, when he does take that moment to be reserved, it, and, and you know, quote, mature, it actually shows you just how deeply this matters to him. Because normally, I mean, he's just like slapping Ida while she's unconscious during this episode, right? Like, he is not Beep. anywhere close to being an adult. But uh, he's so, so, it's so important to him to try to educate uh, Luz about this stuff he cares about, about demons that feels so personal that he's, you know, willing to be so patient. So I think that helps speak to it. It's, It's weird, though, the moments that he is like that. Yeah, despite it all being completely wrong. <laughs> right. I mean, that's the thing. Luz doesn't have to know that. <laughs> yeah, I'd be much more interested in King's lectures if I like didn't know or if I knew <laughs> that what he was saying was actually correct. Yeah, like demons exist to spread misery and then we see that they're just ordinary citizens. They don't even seem to be particularly second-class citizens. They don't make that overt anyway. And uh, then the later revelation that demons do have a high rate of magic use means, yeah, maybe they're probably okay. I don't know. Yeah, and then you have the the one girl in the school, the, the girl with purple skin and three eyes, who's, like, very clearly partially demon. There's, like, she's witch-shaped, right? The pink one. One of, uh, uh... The Grudgeby uh, player, right? Yes. That's, that's Basha, yeah. Basha, yes, the catty one. Where she is very clearly part demon. And um, that has no sway in her ability to attend the school and perform magic. Well, it is the school of witchcraft and demonology. Okay. And, uh, the bipeds do have bile sacs, so whether she was witch, demon, or half and half, she should be just fine. Yes, I would love to see your parents. Are they ever shown? I do not recall seeing anyone's parents except for our group of friends. And I guess Amity counts as our group of friends now. But no other parents. Disney tries to avoid, you know, the mixed fantasy race representation. They're still slow to it, so maybe someday. Oh, there's a Song of the Isles joke in there somewhere. Yeah, there was also um, really good animation in okay, yes! parts of this episode. Yes! Random portions of the show being well animated is my favorite thing. Because it's not always what you'd expect to be fluid and it's also yeah. noticeable because they do the dropped frames effect, right? So they make things very expressive by being, ex- you know, choosing certain frames to animate on and, you know, greatly exaggerate some motions. But, like, why, though? It's always like, they're like, all right, we have a little bit of budget. Where are we going to randomly sprinkle it? I-, I don't understand it, and I've never researched it <laughs> at all. Maybe it's, like, these decisions... I would be really funny if it was, like, completely up to the creators to be like, okay, well, if you feel like you want to over-animate this particular shot, then go for it, right? It's your overtime. I don't care. 
Because that's definitely the vibes I'm getting, where it's like, this was somebody's frame, and they were really proud of it, and so they decided to just go to town. Um, Like, when Luce stands up, and King is swinging from her arm, I'm like, okay, here we go. Or when King is running from um Ida through the hallway. Yeah. Like, t- several shots of, like, extremely fluid, expressive animation. I'm like, <laughs> I think this was just somebody's little passion shot, right? They put a little passion project into this. Like, this doesn't read as, like top-down deciding where to put the money. It was just like, we're all working on this show, and I really like this shot, and so I'm going to commit a lot of my own personal time into um, animating it. Well, the question is, for me, so the way these shows work is somebody draws storyboards, and the storyboards basically contain the keyframes, and then uh, you know a lot of ad- additional instructional stuff is included potentially with the storyboards to, you know, guide the animation. But, you know, ultimately a studio provides all of the fluidity that actually happens between, you know, each keyframe and then it gets reviewed. I I don't, I feel like this is something that would come from the storyboarding side of things instead of yes. the the animation studio side. So it's like some storyboarder decided, it honestly makes me feel like, the way in Steven Universe I would notice, oh yeah, Rebecca Sugar clearly did this part because like, oh, she wants to draw Peridot playing with her fingers one last time. So, you know, you kind of like notice the Rebecca style for this one scene. And it's, I had the same feeling here, like, is Dana coming on and drawing these specific scenes? And, you know, instead of drawing storyboards, she just straight up draws every frame that she wants for this little moment. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there were several instances of, like, the storyboard artists in Steven Universe, like, animating a specific part. They were like, Mm -hmm. no, actually, they might not have done very many in-betweens, but they definitely did, like, a fair amount of keys uh, for that animation. And, like, they'll post it sometimes on their social media where it's like, oh, I did this part. And it's, like, a full-blown animated segment. Well, famously, like, Pearl's twirl in It's Over, isn't it? I'm pretty sure what every frame was uh, drawn by, I think, Rebecca or someone in the universe. Um, So it's like, here's what the full spin looks like, which kind of makes sense because they're going to be the ones who know what a full 3D rotation of Pearl should look like. Um, Well, unless you're, you know, James Baxter and then you just do a nice 3D shot of White Diamond instead, which is also great. Yeah, when you're James Baxter and you're a literal god and are not construed by uh, normal limits of <laughs> human drawing capability. But that's what these scenes feel like in Owl Houses. It's like, oh, guest animator randomly pops in. Like, it has that level of what the hell. Of course, it gets even funnier because sometimes they also add shading in, which it's like, oh, we got the movie budget in this time. They'll just <laughs> randomly make, like, Luz and other characters have this great shading. And you're like, okay, at this point, it actually is completely distracting. I'll, I'll take, you know, some different expressive frames, but when you actually start changing, I mean, shading isn't coloring, but it, it affects, like, just visually much more, oh, this looks like a different show suddenly. And also now I regret seeing it because I wish the whole show could have looked this way. I haven't noticed too much shading. Like for me, it felt context appropriate. Like the the dramatic lighting or they were in a dim area or something like that felt like the shading was appropriate. 
Well, it's like loses dance with Amity is the first thing that comes to my mind. Yes. I was thinking this episode specifically. Yeah, that one where it was just like they flipped the switch and suddenly the budget went up by like three times. Um, yeah, there are definitely right. moments like, like that. I almost this, wish they would like <laughs> ease us in to these like high quality shots or scenes instead of just being like, boom, like we're bringing in the big bucks. Because with that, the loose, loose and animity dancing scene, it was very much like, oh, I see. Like they really want, they really like this one. Or mm-hmm. of course the, the titular James Baxter moment in Steven Universe where it was like, Oh, I see. Like they they brought in a guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, somebody's coming in for this. Uh instead of like I almost wish they would be like you're seeing little hints of better animation kind of leading up to the shot and then it kind of tapers off a little bit. But no, it's just like it's on and then it's off again. And I almost kind of wish it wasn't like that cuz it's so jarring, but I'm not going to say no to some good animation. Yeah, it's <laughs> I it's fun i mean it definitely makes the show feel like more of a created and crafted thing in the same way that having different storyboard artists in adventure time and steven universe gave you the feel of like oh look at the styles of everyone or especially in okko like man i loved just viewing that show because of the personal expressiveness right but it you know it makes more sense in something like okko where the premise is this is a cartoon cartoon, you know? And th- this doesn't have the same expectation. Like, Owl House, I expect it to be like Gravity Falls and Amphibia, where the style is very Disney, and it's very, n- not uniform in a bad way, but it's just extremely on model. Like, I don't, you know, four seasons of Star versus the Forces of Evil, and even though the plot was... Uh, wildly different in quality, <laughs> at least by some fans, uh, you know, opinions online. The animation is like the same because the this studio just does it perfectly. Like you know, who, and of, they um, also do Hilda, right? Like Hilda always looks the same, even though it's beautiful and expressive. Yeah, there, there's a lot of um discipline and uh standardization with them. They're like these are our reference sheets. And they go really into exactly how you're supposed to draw and animate these characters. And everybody's got to be up to speed. And and there are plenty of good shows that don't have that. Obviously, Steven Universe being a big one, where they almost got, like, crazy with the, the lack of standardization and conformity to the character models. But even in shows like Avatar The Last Airbender, you could tell when characters were being drawn by a certain person. Like, there was definitely style variations throughout the show and even like from episode to episode um season one of course looks way different from like season three but like you can tell certain shots were animated with somebody's like or or just drawn with somebody's own personal kind of stylization or flair with the characters and it's one of the best animated shows of all time yeah it's it it, yeah it's like I almost, the way I think about, I'm, I'm like trying to draw a line in my head, like how can you actually tell they look different or what feels different about it? Even though technically anything can be digitally animated, it sure looks more like Avatar is something that like looks hand-drawn versus the Owl House. You could like imagine all of these characters being like created and rigged once because they have that level of consistency in them. Yeah, these guys have vectors. Right. <laughs> It feels a little more like vector art. 
Yeah, like, even down to, like, the line thickness on certain parts of uh, the character models are completely consistent. Which is something that's really hard to achieve, because that's, like, if you're drawing that by hand, you have to keep the same level of pressure on the same part of a line every single time you draw that line on that part of the character, which is very, very hard to do. And um, in The Last Airbender, they really didn't. So line thickness was kind of a bit more variable versus in the Owl House, you're like, this this looks rigged. Like, not in a bad way, but um, it's so, like, uniform that you could think of it as rigged. Yeah. Like, it might it might be, the animation itself might be hand-drawn, and then it might be, like, cleaned up and lined in, like, vector art. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know that process more. <laughs> yes. Disney, if you're listening, our email is open. So, well, what what is our email again, GC? <laughs> I know David has a Lunar Ceasefire address. I got a David at LunarCeasefire.com. So Disney, you know, business contact, please. Uh, <laughs> please come and tell us how you animate the show. Yeah, David, our PR manager. <laughs> For business inquiries, please email David at LunarCeasefire.com. Well, I'm glad you guys were able to notice because all this stuff went way over my head. Uh, it's like I didn't even, I couldn't appreciate all the high quality animation in One Punch Man Season 1 until it was gone in One Punch Man Season 2. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's easier to, well, see, that's the thing is it is a comparative noticing. Like we, we're, we're, we're talking about the animation more because these scenes stood out versus... You know, normally you think about it less. But, you know, that's what we're about, Lunar Sea Spire. We, we notice both the deep lore and the deep frames. I, for one, didn't catch on that it was Ida as the monster until he put the label together. So <laughs> huh. everybody has so their strengths, GC. <laughs> that's right. As we learned in The Intruder. Uh, anyway, guys, that's it for us on The Intruder. Join us next week. Until then, I'm GC13. I'm Soren. And I'm David. Oh, uh, 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 leave us a review on iTunes. Do we still have it? Later, everybody. Our opening and closing music is by Mark Soto. For more cartoon-related content, please visit LunarCeasefire.com. <laughs>